Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. Today, our guest is Dr. Amir Zarnpar. Amir is a board-certified gastroenterologist and an assistant professor at UC San Diego in the Department of Medicine. He completed his undergrad at Harvard, his MD-PhD at UCSD, and his postdoc at the Salk Institute in Sachin Panda's lab. To quote the Zarnpar lab website, Amir's lab is interested in the role that the gut plays in host physiological processes, specifically the reciprocal interaction between the luminal environment, including the microbiome and their secondary metabolites, and intestinal cells that establishes a physiological homeostasis outside of the gut. When this homeostasis is disturbed, it can affect metabolic regulation and predisposition to inflammation in other target organs. Research in the Zarnpar lab focuses on how diet composition and daily eating patterns dynamically affect this homeostasis by changing the cyclical dynamics of the gut microbiome, intestinal gene expression, and gut signaling. By manipulating these systems, his lab hopes to find novel pathways that can affect host metabolism. Finally, the Zarnpar lab hopes to translate their findings from rodents to humans by conducting longitudinal observational studies and clinical trials. In this conversation, Amir and I talk about diabetes and obesity, engineered native bacteria, and time-restricted feeding. Many of you listeners may have heard of time-restricted feeding referred to as intermittent fasting. We also highlight his lab's recent paper published in the journal Cell. Finally, we dig into Amir's philosophies related to science, mentorship, and life. You can find links to the article and the Zarnpar lab website in the show notes. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Amir Zarnpar. All right, Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. To start off, I want to ask you about something I read on your website a term that I had never heard before called uh, diabesity. And I was hoping you could define this term, say why it's important to study and how it relates to another term that I am familiar with, which is metabolic disease. Diabesity to me means the combination of an animal, in this case, mouse or human, that has increased adiposity, so they have a lot more fat in their body, and that this increase in adiposity is responsible for insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Oftentimes, these things go hand in hand. Uh, In patients, as in mice, uh, rarely in mice, uh, but in patients, you can certainly see someone that has increased adiposity or like, you know, they they have problems with weight gain. Uh, but who do not have diabetes and or insulin resistance. And likewise, you can see individuals who have insulin resistance and diabetes, but not uh, at least apparent increased adiposity. So uh, in humans, there's just so much more variability. And, you know, there are so many things that are responsible for type 2 diabetes and uh, the increased weight that we've been seeing in humans which are multifactorial, environmental, sedentary lifestyle, throw in genetics, microbiome, changes in diet pattern and whatnot. Sometimes we're trying to restrict what we're talking about to make it easier to study. So if we can understand 
what aspect of increased adiposity leads to insulin resistance, then maybe we can devise a therapeutic that then will work on humans that have those same conditions. It's going to be hard to find a silver bullet that works on every for everything on everyone. So, so yeah. In terms of therapeutics, one potential therapeutic that your lab is very well known for investigating is time-restricted feeding. Could you explain what time-restricted feeding is? Yeah, so this is something I worked on as a postdoc in Sachin Panda's lab. You know, one of the things that Sachin's lab noticed was that animals that receive a high-fat diet spread their caloric intake throughout night and day. This was actually reported by Joe Bass's group in Northwestern in a paper in Cell Metabolism. And um, what Sachin started to do was play around with determining whether feeding was in training circadian rhythms in the liver. And while he was doing those experiments, he realized that when he restricted feeding to the nocturnal period, that it was having a beneficial phenotype. Uh, it was actually, what I mean by beneficial phenotype, it was helping these mice stay lean and healthier, and it was restoring their rhythm. So then basically I showed up at the right time in the sense that that was just when they had decided to pursue this more wholeheartedly to see if this consolidating feeding to the nocturnal period for the mice prevents the metabolic effects of that terrible nutritional diet. And then the rest is history in the sense that it did. And we've been trying to figure out how ever since. And um, I worked on that paper with lots of great uh, other postdocs in the lab who have gone on to do lots of great things. The particular angle that I pursued has been the contribution of the gut microbiome and in particular the intestines in in training peripheral rhythms and and what that tells us about this metabolism, obesity, di diabetes, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Uh, so that's how we just took off with this, and we're still trying to figure this out. So mm -hmm. one potential mechanism by which this time restricted feeding seems to work, based on your work, is through bile acid metabolism. Correct. Correct. Yeah, uh, that's been somewhat surprising because I usually tell people the main reason why we study bile acids is because it's so easy to tell what's coming from bacteria and what's coming from uh, mice. And uh, it's a little bit like um, searching for the keys under the light. And usually we use it mainly to justify our big sequencing fishing expeditions that we do. But it turns out that they may play a really big role as we have continued to investigate further and further. And it's, it seems like bile acids are a very important environmental cue that primes the metabolic machinery of the host um, in utilizing energy differently. Could you explain a little bit more elementary level what a bile acid is, uh, how maybe it's involved? Sure. Um, so bile acids are usually a byproduct of cholesterol um, made by the liver. And before the 
uh, bile acids are stored for potential use, they are conjugated with a protein. So basically a protein is attached to them. And the reason why we make these bile acids is because they're really helpful in breaking down fat droplets into smaller fat droplets or micelles because bile acids are essentially soaps. They're there to break up these lipid droplets and help us absorb them better. As you can imagine, uh, soaps are not good for bacteria. So bacteria have developed various strategies to modify these bile acids to either make them weaker soaps to survive in this environment in which a product that could potentially affect their bilipid layer, their cell walls or whatnot. So we think that the bacterial processing of bile acids then is a nutritional cue to the host. You know, so so just to step back, I'm I'm kind of getting more in depth, I think, in answering this than you anticipated. But usually, when That's you good. eat a protein, it breaks up into amino acids, and your liver gets those amino acids, and it knows how much protein you've eaten. When you eat carbohydrates, they get broken down into simple sugars. They go into the liver, and the liver knows how much carbohydrates or sugars you're getting. But lipids do not go to the liver; they go into the lymphatics. So how does the liver really know how much fat is in the diet? We think it's through the kind of bile acids it gets back from the lumen. If a lot of the lipids it gets back are these conjugated powerful soaps, then it suggests that there was a lot of fat and these lipids are, were reabsorbed with the fats. And if they are modified by the bacteria, then that suggests that there weren't that much lipids in the lumen and these bacteria were exposed to these free-flowing bile acids um, and are modifying them and sending them back, which then the body interprets as a nutritional cue. This is pure conjectures and speculation, but, but that's what we think is going on. If these are sort of like a rheostat, like letting the body know how much fat is in the diet, there's receptors for the bile acids then on the host, correct? Correct. Okay. So um, the most famous one is, of course, FXR, which is uh, it's a nuclear hormone receptor that's been very well characterized by Ron Evans' group across the street from us at the Salk Institute. There's a G-protein-coupled receptor, TGR5 as well. And these receptors um, play a, a very important role in metabolism, and we're still learning all the different things they could be doing for the host. There are also less well-characterized bile acid receptors, such as the vitamin D receptor, CAR, I forget what it stands for, but there's CAR, v VDR is the vitamin D receptor. PAR is also another bile acid receptor as well. So like, you know, since that cholesterol base of bile acids, it can potentially activate lots of different types of receptors. I think there's a lot of promiscuity in terms of what these bile acids can activate. Mm -hmm. Awesome, that was a great explanation. I hope it was. I'm sorry, I, I felt like I, I never... gave. I gave like I'm trying to think. Man, my kids would not have understood that, so maybe I should have explained it differently. I, I like the soap analogy. I think that was helpful. So your lab, you know, reading through your list of publications, everything is related to this diabetes overarching topic. And everything thus far, everything thus far, thus far. So under that umbrella, there's 
the time-restricted feeding. There's the circadian rhythm work. And there's the bile acids and all of the the overlap between those topics. But there's something very recently that you've published that was a big article that seems like it's a new direction for the lab. Still under that diabetes umbrella, but it seems to be a new avenue that could create new avenues for your lab beyond the diabetes. And, and I'm referring to the recent paper you published in Cell with uh, Bailey Russell as the, the first author. So you're engineering bacteria, uh, E. coli, native E. coli, taking bacteria from someone, changing them, putting genes in, and changing the physiology and, and disease status of, of the host when you put it back in. You call this a, a live bacteria therapeutic, right, LBT. What inspired this project? Yeah, so what inspired this was the nature of a lot of the microbiome work that we were doing, um, as well as what's in the field, is that it's very correlational. There's a lot of seeing how things change, and some of the better, more exciting studies go to notobiotic mice and demonstrate that the phenotype is transferred with the microbiome. We had demonstrated in an earlier paper that reduced community models are not good for studying diabetes, that basically these mice have a lot of compensatory changes from these reduced communities. Reduced communities being like... Antibiotic-treated. Or, or germ-free, germ adding in like a single bug kind of thing. Exactly. And the simplest way of explaining this is that the microbiome is really important uh, for many reasons, but among them is that they help us digest food and provide various vitamins and, as we discussed with bile acids, important nutritional signals. And when you take away these things, you're essentially putting the animal in a starving state. What we had noticed in antibiotic-treated mice and what others had demonstrated in notobiotic mice is that a lot of the hormones that are involved in metabolic regulation of the body in terms of how the body utilizes sugars and whatnot just go haywire. We had seen some of the previous work where people had used engineered bacteria to try to figure out what the microbiome was doing, but they were all in notobiotic mice or in antibiotic-treated mice, and so we didn't feel satisfied with some of the explanations that they were providing as to what was going on in the microbe-host relationship in relation to diabetes and uh, obesity. So from these time-restricted feeding studies, we were learning more and more that bile acids were perhaps an important signal. And we wanted to figure out a way where we can knock in a function into the microbiome that will help us determine how important these bile acid changes are. And we needed this to work in fully conventional mice. This is one of those situations where not knowing much about a field <laughs> before entering it really helped us to bring a fresh pair of eyes to the problem. And we started off doing what some other groups had tried, which was using E. coli nissel 
and the function that we had engineered into NISL was not really working. And what I mean by that is that some of the mice lost colonization after time. We weren't really sure whether the function that they had was working in these mice or not. And then uh, while we were working on NISL, we came across a native E. coli that showed up on one of our plates that we then decided to try to engineer instead. Once we realized that that bacteria was tractable, we used that to deliver our transgene of interest and essentially all of our problems that we had with NISL went away and we were able to get long-term stable engraftment in a fully conventional mouse and to test whether these bile acid modifications had an effect on metabolism. I think that, you know, we were approaching this as a metabolic problem and then re we realized that, hey, we just came up with something really cool that a has tool. much more broad applications than what we intended it for its use, which was to figure out how time-restricted feeding worked. But you're right, it, we kind of see it as a hammer now, looking for different kinds of nails. Um, we've used it to deliver different transgenes of interest, and it seems to work really well. And we're hoping to develop it for two different reasons. One is to, actually for three reasons. One is to just even understand the behavior of bacteria in a complex microbial community in the gut. Now that we can keep track of a bacteria for very long periods of time, we can look for horizontal gene transfer. We can look at how specific functions modify communities. We can look at how diet affects bacterial genomic stability or even transcriptomic stability, things of that sort. Before we came up with engineered native bacteria, we started work doing some metatranscriptomics. So now we can try to knock in these different functions that come up in metatranscriptomics to see their effects on host physiology, whether they have an effect or not. So that's been an exciting avenue. And then, of course, the third is... Um, instead of putting in prokaryotic genes like we described in the paper to actually put therapeutic products like cytotoxic agents that become activated when they noted, when the bacteria notices that it's on cancer or anti-inflammatory agents when the bacteria notices that there is inflammation around. It really expands what you can do um, with these bacteria. So like the imagination doth run wild. Like you can do a lot of really cool things with it. Mm -hmm. So because this podcast is called Inflammatory Content, is all about immunology, I do want to talk about the host gene you put in in the paper, IL-10. But before we get to that, could you just quickly describe what happened when you put in this bile acid? Is a bile acid hydrolase enzyme? Bile salt hydrolase. So, so what bile salt hydrolase does is that it's a gene that some bacteria have that deconjugates this bile acid, which means that it basically takes that protein that these bile acids are attached to off, and it makes this very strong soap a weaker soap. So you can imagine that this is a really important function for a lot of the bacteria in the gut, because now they can survive in, in a bile-rich environment. And then once these bacteria become deconjugated, it allows other bacteria to go and further modify them, uh, use them for different substrates, use them for different kinds of reactions that they have. And 
these further modifications produces what are as a class called secondary bile acids, which are really powerful signals. We actually didn't know what to expect, to be honest. We thought that it could either make diabetes worse or better based on what was published in the field. But what we demonstrated was that with a single treatment of these engineered bacteria expressing bile salt hydrolase in a mouse that was fully conventional and even in a non-sterile facility, and these mice had never seen antibiotics before, so we didn't need to prep the mice to receive these bacteria, we get long-term perpetual engraftment of our bacteria with the transgene. We get retention of the transgene, so it remains functional throughout the rest of this mouse's life. And not only that, but you know, when we come back after three months, four months after this mouse is treated with our bacteria, we see fecal bile acid changes, we see serum bile acid changes, we see host gene expression in the liver as a result of these bile acid changes. And importantly, we saw changes, I mean, we were interested in metabolism at that time, so we see changes in postprandial glucose and insulin sensitivity. And then the, the final experiment that we did to kind of prove the point that this is important was that we took an OB-OB mouse, which is an animal model of diabetes. These are hyperphagic, meaning these mice just can't stop eating. They're just eating, eating, eating. And um, we showed that these mice, um, even though they don't stop eating <laughs> and they are obese, they have much improved insulin sensitivity three or four months after treatment with our bacteria. So it seems to be a very persistent treatment that lasts for a very long time. That was quite exciting to see. And yeah, and now we've been playing around with it for different purposes. So where can I get some? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that the you know, it's kind of funny because um some of the people working on it is like, what if some of it accidentally ends up in my mouth? <laughs> but um what I what we think is going on is also that these bacteria are mice bacteria. So they're when we take human engineered bacteria and put them in mice, they don't colonize well and they don't last very long. We'd have to do this for a human bacteria before we can put it in a human. Mm -hmm. This is the whole autologous aspect of the, of the work, right? Where ultimately you envision or you see it being most possible when you have a specific individual, you harvest a bacteria, potentially an E. coli, from their gut, engineer it, and then put it back in them, right? So in the paper, that's what we said. Although all of the experiments in our paper were allogenic and we, you know, we only isolated one bacteria. But from uh, identically, uh, identical mice, right? Correct. Genetically. Correct. Our suspicion is that this would work autologously in humans. I mean, the other thing that we made a name of ourselves doing is demonstrating how incredibly dynamic the microbiome is. So each one of our microbiomes is highly dynamic and highly specific to us based on what we got from our parents and the different environments that we grew up in and our specific diets and products that we use and our habits to ask a bacteria that has never lived in such a dynamic and crazy environment to come in and engraft and not only engraft but express a gene 
that may not be beneficial to them, I think is a tall task. So our, our thinking of using native bacteria was that it gets around all these problems that we were noticing that Nissel was having. That since this bacteria is already adapted to the luminal environment, particularly of the luminal environment of the mice that we're trying to change, not only is it easy for them to engraft, but it's also easy for them to express this other transgene that they have. Whether it has to be autologous or allergenic in humans, I think we will one day have to see once someone gets approval to do this in humans. But I think it's going to be interesting nevertheless. Mm -hmm. All right, on to aisle 10. Okay. So the immunologist and me, I want you to put aisle 10 in there and cure colitis. Is that is that in the works? It is in the works. So the reason why we didn't pursue aisle 10 uh, more wholeheartedly in that paper was because the and and you know this also brings into question as to what what do we think is really going on with bsh as well is that il10 gets produced by the bacteria but it's not released by the bacteria so we need to figure out a way of shuttling this il10 out of the bacteria without it losing its functionality protein export from bacteria uh, has been especially mammalian proteins has been difficult we have some strategies that we're trying out We'll see if it works. The other thing that we did, which in retrospect, I'm not sure if it was a good idea or a bad idea, we just wanted to demonstrate that bacteria could do this, is that the IL-10 that we knocked into the bacteria that we had in that study are human IL-10. So we had to change it to a mouse IL-10 to use it in mouse colitis models. So that's something else that we had to change. But we are on the verge of doing it in a bacteria that doesn't secrete the protein. We just think that maybe if the bacteria dies in the tissue, then it releases IL-10 and it may still have a beneficial effect. Let's see, what can I tell you prelim-wise that could get your listeners excited is that the bile acid-modifying bacteria do affect the LPS response they do affect DSS response. The fact that, you know, again, we don't think that BSH is being exported out of these cells makes us uh, optimistic about the IL-10 experiment that we're doing, even though IL-10 is not being exported. Also, I should say that we are working on an IL-22 and IL-27 version as well. So these are in the works. Very cool. And at baseline, the bacteria with bile acid modification, so if you put it in a wild-type mouse, which has under no stress and nothing happening to it, there's no change in T-cells. So what's interesting is that in an animal that's just sitting there, there's nothing weird going on in terms of their, in the breakdown of their T-cells, how many T-regs and whatnot they have. Uh, but we do think that when you stress the animal with LPS or with something else, that it does shift things. That's our suspicion anyway. So we'll see if that's that ends up being true or not. You might be able to answer this question because you have this tool now. I've never thought of this before, but how long does a bacteria live in the gut? Yeah, you know, so one of the experiments that we've been doing has been looking at how these bacteria evolve and pick up new genes. We call it the in vivo Lensky experiment. So Lensky is um, a, a fantastic microbiologist in Michigan State. 
who looked at bacterial evolution by just taking bacteria and uh, every day putting it in new stock. But you know, the thing is that when you do this in vitro, you know how many generations of bacteria you've created. But in the host, we don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I can't answer that question. Uh, we haven't tried to answer that question. I can, I, I can say that. And I think there are other interesting things going on because you know, we're using E. coli as our chassis mm -hmm. to deliver functions. And E. coli is a very low abundant organism in the microbiome of a mouse. So then, of course, the question is, what if we use the high abundant organism? Or maybe E. coli occupies a special niche. So what if we use the bacteria that occupied a different niche? We show proximal gut engraftment of our E. coli. So is this beneficial functions due to its engraftment in the small intestine rather than the colon? Or why is it that it's behaving like it has such a pronounced effect on physiology that others haven't noticed with Nissel? Well, Nissel is primarily in the colon when people have characterized it, not in the small intestine. So um, I think there are so many questions that now we can answer with these things. And we're also working with other chassis that we can use as well. So there's always this question of same function, different chassis, will it lead to the same results or not? Right, because it could be, like you said, different engraftment location or different abundance of bacteria, so different dose of the... Very cool. So maybe eventually we can envision having this kind of library of different chassis to you know pick for whatever indication you want. Yeah, and I think the other thing that also makes things super complicated and makes me feel like I will never be out of a job is that with prokaryotic genes, there's a lot of variety. So even with bile salt hydrolase, that's a gene that many bacteria have, and they all have different versions of it. So uh, we pick the one that's most promiscuous in terms of being able to affect the most bile acids. But you can imagine that if we use the different version of bile salt hydrolase, we may have had a completely different effect. That's another thing. If you use the same chassis to deliver a different version of the same prokaryotic gene, will your phenotypic output change as well? So those are really important questions. I think that, like, you know, one of the questions that we always get is that BSH is already there. So what is it that your bacteria is doing? that um, makes metabolism better. Usually we just say that it's just the better BSH um, and it's much more effective in making these changes, but I think that we ought to be able to prove that one day. And I think now that we can actually look at specific genes and specific functions, a lot of things that we've been attributing to the bacteria due to our metagenomic studies and metatranscriptomic studies we can actually test out now and, and determine whether this specific function from this specific bacteria has the effects that we think it does or not. So it should be exciting. Yeah, sounds like it. So you founded a company too. Mm -hmm. What's the deal with that? Do you want to hear my pipe dream? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, as a physician scientist, you want to make discoveries that impact human health. To me, the thing that really bothered me about all this is that you come up with a small molecule and people are going to go charge a lot of money for, for that small molecule and some people are going to have access to it and it's going to take 
what, 20, 30 years for it to become generic and then more people will have access to it. And it's very profit driven. And maybe if you're lucky, it'll be useful for more than one indication. The thing that I found very unsettling about that is that it continues to drive the cost of healthcare up and it doesn't give access to medicines in an earlier stage. You know, the, the, the joke about physicians who are in internal medicine is that we're pill pushers, right? That, that we treat all these different ailments with different pills. And, but I think that no matter what your political persuasion is, the thing that we all agree on is that the cost of healthcare in our country is increasing and there's really no good strategy to reverse that, that people can agree on. And coming up with newer medicines doesn't necessarily help us reverse that in a, or in a way that I could immediately recognize from my basic understanding of economics. So I really was hoping that we could find something that would be more curative. And, you know, the thing that we're always told is that you shouldn't try to cure things, you should try to make pills that people have to take every day. But I think that patient groups are asking for cures. Patients with IBD want cures. Patients with type 1 diabetes want cures. If you're able to do a single treatment that reverses a chronic disease, especially if it's something that's bacterial, then the cost of that, you know, making bacteria is not that expensive. And the cost of that is really low and it could really have an impact on the economy of healthcare. So that's the pipe dream, to have an impact in bringing healthcare costs down by pursuing what are essentially cheap medicines to make, meaning bacteria, that can then um, impart lasting health to chronic disease by being more curative in nature, or in at least functionally curative. When we formed uh, the company to commercialize this, we noticed that a lot of the uh, companies that are out there are shooting for, you know, basically creating bacteria that people would have to take every day, if not three times a day, or take medicine to keep those bacteria alive. What we wanted was to engineer a bacteria that can basically persist, stay there, and perform a function that is missing, in, as in the case with um, patients that have like an inborn error of metabolism where they're missing a gene and hence can't perform a, a basic and important metabolic function, we think that we can impart that function onto a bacteria to perform it for them and hence have a lasting effect. Or um, to devise bacteria where the bacteria can sense when there is something wrong. So for example, they can sense whether there is cancer or they can sense where, whether there is a colitis flare coming up and thus express a beneficial gene, be it a cytotoxic agent or anti-inflammatory cytokine to reverse that process. That would be so transformational for not only the kind of impact you would have on a patient's life, but um, just the, like the economy of our country, like people, we didn't have to pay all this money for people to be on immunomodulators for IBD or on the, all these medications for type 2 diabetes. A lot of the problems that we have 
both in health and in our country would go away. So I think that that's the kind of, that's the pipe dream, that if people are thinking of what is potentially curative, that we can really have an impact on doing this. I think that pharmaceutical companies may not be necessarily driven to find cures, but I think as an academic institution funded by the NIH, we don't have that profit-driven motivation. What we should be thinking of is what is the best treatment that we can think of. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. With the company, is the kind of first step to get some some funding to do some small-scale clinical trials for, would you start with diabetes or based on the preclinical no, so, work? So we're going to go for the orphan diseases since this is a new platform. We are in partnership with a bigger company. I can't announce it just yet because the ink isn't dry on the contract yet, but we are partnering up with a bigger company to go after an inborn error of metabolism. And at that point, basically, the bacteria will be expressing a function that the host is missing. And the benefit of that is that you're creating a potential functionally curative product for a disease where there aren't that many treatments for them. But also the hope is that um, in this most basic model, um, you don't have to worry about tuning the bacteria or, or getting rid of the bacteria or things of that sort, which makes some of these other aspects that we haven't worked out yet like biocontainment and things like that, still acceptable to the patient population that we want to treat. Awesome. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Talk more about, about you and your scientific development and your lab and kind of how you got to where you're at. So one question I really like to ask people that I feel like is very informative is a question about the favorite failure is there a time in your career where you've just really screwed something up and looking back now, you couldn't imagine a life without that screw up? Anything come to mind? No, I mean, I don't... Um, you have no failures? No, I, I've <laughs> never failed in anything I do, Kellen. Um, no, you know what it, you know what it was... Um, I guess like, you know, my favorite, I, I'm not sure if this is a favorite failure, but I had a hard time getting into med school and getting into an MD PhD program. You know, I didn't have the best grades when I was in college. I didn't have the best MCAT scores for that matter either. And I just remember, so something, I'm not a very religious person, but one of my friends said, oh, you should come and listen to this guy, Peter Gomes, who's the university preacher at Harvard when I was there. And the first thing that he talked about was like, you know, how he said that he hopes that we experience failure quickly and then goes through all the benefits of experiencing failure and how you're not really pushing the envelope or trying things. You're not taking as many risks as you should be taking if you don't have failure. This was in 99 that he was sharing this. So this wasn't during the you know, whatever, the entrepreneurial spirits of the 2000s. So, so this idea that, that failure is a part of growth was instilled in me very early. And then sure enough, like a couple of days after that, I heard that I got off the wait list at UCSD to come here to do an MD-PhD. 
so I guess like you know I never viewed failure negatively as a result of that 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 was very form it was a very formative speech that I listened to and I think that it has been something that's followed me to this day that we do think that failure in our lab failure meaning the experiment doesn't work out quite in the way that it that you expect it to usually implies that there's something there we don't really understand so it's exciting when things don't work out and so we don't really view it very negatively i think that there's the issues of not getting a grant or not getting a paper, but those are all kind of meaningless, uh, mainly because even with the cell paper was rejected five times before it got into cell from other journals. So it's kind of like, um, I have a habit of getting my papers that are rejected into a higher impact factor journal than when we first submitted them to. And this was definitely one of those instances where um, it got reviewed, it got rejected uh, from Gosh, can I mention the name? Science Translational yeah. Med. And then I've tried to send the editor so many emails saying, hey, we can address all these comments. And she ignored our emails, uh, perhaps because she was so busy and she gets so many of these requests. And then we're like, well, forget it. Like, you know, let's just do what the reviewers asked for and we can get it into a better journal. And the rest is history. Yeah, so I never view these things... They're just part of the job, I guess. Mm -hmm. You've got to develop a thick skin. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's important for trainees especially to to know about some of these quote-unquote failures because, you know, from the outside looking in, maybe, a uh, you know, an early grad student or undergrad looking at your lab and the cell paper and all these, like, big publications and realize that, there's a lot of failure behind all that success that you see on the on the CV, you know? I mean, the one thing that I will share that is related to this issue of failure is that I think the thing that is the most harmful part of science is hubris. And I think that the most important characteristic a scientist should have is trusting their gut and being willing to go out on a limb. And the reason why I say these things is that I really wanted to come to UCSD because my undergrad work was in cognitive neurosciences and UCSD had the best cognitive neuroscience program in the country. But as soon as I put an electrode into a neuron and saw the action potentials, I was like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. <laughs> I'm gonna be doing this from now on. Being willing to be the idiot in the lab who doesn't know anything and starting from the ground level and learning everything anew is exciting and wonderful, but incredibly like, you know, like people are going to treat you like the idiot, right? You know, that really primed me, my PhD experience. I went into a whole new area and learned a lot about it. You know, when I was going to do my postdoctoral work, I was thinking that I could use a lot of the neurophysiology that I learned in the brain and apply it to the gut. But when I went into the clinic, I realized that, you know, this whole diabetes, diabetes problem is a huge problem. We have no idea what we're telling patients and we have really bad 
treatments for it and we need to understand it better. And I saw Ron Evans talk uh, about uh, PPA or Delta in his marathon mice, which blew my mind as to the cool experiments that people who are doing met metabolic research were doing. What was the, the gist of that? A study. That basically these mutants and PPAR Delta uh, get all the benefits of running a marathon with just short exercise wow. bursts. So, um, but it was just it was just incredible. And then of course there's this whole idea of what are the physiological effects of bariatric surgery that impart these benefits. And and I just thought you know who cares about enteric nervous system when you got this big medical problem that that we just don't know anything about and I like to work on th in this metabolism space. And so, you know, now you got to imagine an MD, PhD who has all the clinical training to become a gastroenterologist entering the lab where they know nothing again. And I just remember the first week, the undergraduate technician was yelling at me because... This is during your residency? This then? was during my postdoc. Okay. Was yelling at me because so wait, wait, I had... How does that... Like, two years MD, PhD, last two years of MD... So then I when does the post So then I there? went to a fast track residency, which then gives you two years of residency, eighteen months of gastroenterology, and now I'm doing research again. Okay, so it's like a combined residency fellowship. Yeah, and it gives you protected time huh. for a postdoc. So yeah, so basically, you know, I've had all this clinical training. I've been leading teams and taking care of patients and things like that, and then joining a lab where you don't know how to do anything. I worked in rats. I didn't even work in mice. And I just remember this undergraduate technician noticed that I reached into a bag of Eppendorf tubes with my bare hands and kind of yelled at me for not knowing what the hell I was doing. All of the MDs do that. <laughs> <laughs> and basically taking that bag and throwing it in the trash, like with full effect to kind of show. And I just, you know, and I think that like, I think that if you really like the science, you're willing to check your hubris and start anew in an area that you know very little about. But I think that having this this fresh set of eyes and being an outsider and being willing to ask questions and realizing also the important part of this realization was also that if someone can't explain something to you, it's because they don't really understand it either. Like, I think that since I was always the person who was new in the lab who didn't know what the hell was going like how to help to do anything that I didn't have to worry about imposter syndrome which is a big problem for a lot of other people because I was willing to say I don't really understand this at all you need to explain this to me and I think that people were since there would say oh Amir he's not an idiot he's just new to our field we'll teach him these things so so I think that um I think that that was a big part at least in preventing imposter syndrome in the fields that I was in. We can talk about imposter syndrome with starting out a lab. But but I think that uh but I think that, you know, you're there to learn. And I think if you're there to learn and you're there to do really great science, that everything else just falls into place. I don't know. Just ask a lot of questions, remain engaged, tell people when you don't understand something. Part of being a good scientist is being able to explain your science in a way that it could be understood, right? And I think that realizing that if someone can't do that, then they have trouble understanding it as well. That it's not you who's the idiot. Um, I think that that goes a long way in 
helping each other get through what is a very difficult field of study, I guess. Mm -hmm. One thing that kind of brings to mind to me is something I'm learning from my mentor, Rich, Rich Gallo. You know, when reading like a reviewer's comment, my immediate reaction is like, grr, like almost angry. And Rich is kind of so good at just spinning it, reframing it another way and being like, no, you, we just need to explain it better. Like we, we need to do better. Like everyone's smart. We just need to communicate better. And I think becoming a, a good scientist has, is so much about just reframing negatives into positives and yeah and i think i think that's true about grant reviewers as well they just want your experiments to be better and for you to succeed in showing your hypothesis is true or not and i think that once you are at a level where you are reviewing grants or reviewing articles you're doing it because you want to see good science you want to see people do better work you're you're right in the sense that I think when you've done this a few times, you realize that people are just doing their best and they want you to do good work. So when you know you're going into new fields and 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 starting a lab and dealing with maybe negative things like imposter syndrome and and having to be able to reframe some of these failures into learning experiences, that can be challenging, and I'm wondering if there's things that you do on a on a daily basis to help yourself kind of keep a good perspective and, and not get stuck. For me, it's definitely my family. As practically everyone in the lab knows, uh, between 6 and 9 p.m., I don't do work, and I'm spending that time. And 6, you know, I try to have dinner with my kids and hang out with my wife, and... Nine o'clock is when my kids go to sleep and my wife is turning in as well. So usually I start working a little bit after that. And then just protecting time with family is really important to me. You know, soon after my first kid was born, I was still doing the crazy postdoc hours of working all the time. You know, so at that time, basically, my wife is like, you know what, this isn't, this career is really not worth it if you're not going to be with us on weekends. And if you're not really going to be with us, um, like, you know, we both had agreed how important it is to have dinner with our kids. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It really isn't worth it if I'm not around for these important things. Like, I, I remember I got into a big heated discussion with my postdoctoral advisor telling him how I was not going to come in on weekends to do experiments anymore. And he questioned my commitment to science as a result. And I told him, look, if there is a really good reason for me to come in, then I'll come in, but I'm just not going to come in for the sake of coming in. I think he just let it be. And then I don't think my productivity really changed that much. Like, I think that it's one of those things where if you keep the time protected, like if you have these times where you're, it's going to be you time, right? You're going to charge your batteries. You're going to step away from this work that can suck up your entire life if you let it. It's it's just so important to do that. And, um, and you know, my kids are at an age where they still like us a lot. <laughs> so I got to like hang out as much with them as possible before they be get to those teenage years where they become ordinary and not want to hang out, where they're perpetually embarrassed by what we do. So I think that it's really been enjoying that time with them. 
so would you say you've kind of found the sweet spot of how much effort and time you put in with the productivity you saying like you know even dialing it back a little bit with taking off the weekends you didn't sacrifice anything to me i mean i'm sure if you talk to my pi he'd say oh he was slower or something like that but to me it didn't make a difference and that's what matters right yeah <laughs> like you know if you're able if to you still, feel good about it yeah right? if you feel good about it then that's what's important or you feel like your career trajectory is going in the way that you want it to then it then that's what's important um Sorry, sorry, can you rephrase? You actually asked a really good question that I was going to answer. Can you rephrase what you were saying? I don't remember what I said. Yeah, gosh, we got, <laughs> we got to listen to the recording. But yeah, no, no, I think, oh, oh finding this productivity. Thing, oh, yes. Thing. Um, the no, sweet I'm spot. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I could tell you I have it figured out. I think that I'm still over committing. One of my New Year's resolutions is try to get to bed earlier. For a circadian researcher, I usually, I routinely get four to five hours of sleep. I can still work on that and improve that in a way that's that is better for my long-term health, I guess. You must have some like cognitive dissonance, right? You know, we we study the thing that we know least, right? Like the that's why all the psychologists have the reputation of being a little bit loony and uh and things of that sort. I think that the things that I do are really fun. Like I have a lot of fun doing this. Okay, I the think science or the all staying science, up late. science and working with the people in my lab and the particular questions we're going after. I even enjoy like reviewing the papers that I review, writing the grant. I really like writing grants. Actually, I find it very cathartic. Um, I really like what we do a lot and creating these opportunities where. My trainees surprise me with the results that we get. So for me, like, you know, if you were to say you get to do all these cool things, but you don't get to sleep that much, to me, the calculus is worth it right now. But of course, as I age, the calculus may change. <laughs> uh, so I have been, like, for example, uh, sleeping more, which is great, and taking like a less rapid pace when it comes to writing grants which is great but you know i think the other thing that i made me much more at peace with this job that i have is that the to-do list is never over like you're never like that's this actually something i learned from gabby haddad like i'm like i'm just a junior faculty and i have all this stuff to do and there's no way i can do all of them you're a department chair and you have a bigger lab and you do all this stuff. So how do you do it all? And he's like, well, the simple answer is that I don't do it all. You shouldn't have this expectation that you're going to accomplish all your, your to-dos. So you're just constantly prioritizing, reprioritizing based on deadlines and whatnot. And maybe one day I'll be fortunate enough to have professional members in my lab who I can delegate more things to. Yes, a lot of the things... I enjoy doing there's some things I really don't enjoy doing like writing progress reports to NIH grants but things like that like you know I think that you just try to find ways to delegate tasks so I am a fourth year PhD student now and I would like to stay in academia imagine I'll do a postdoc like if you could say one thing to all of your grad students when they're leaving the lab to go start a postdoc, like one piece of advice to send them on their way with, what, what would it be? 
the thing that I would tell people is that the reason why being academic is so fun and it's, I think, worth, worth it is um, two things. One is that you're constantly learning new things. And it's a job where you can constantly reinvent yourself every so many years. And with that reinvention is the idea that you're also going to be learning a whole new set of tasks. So for example, you can imagine that an academic person after a few years get asked to be on an editorial board. So now you're learning how to be an editor of papers. And then you're asked to take over uh, an administrative position. So in my case, become director of the PSTP. So now I gotta think of like, how do I recruit physician scientists? How do I uh, foster their careers? And, and um, I need to learn so much about other divisions besides the one that I'm in. So there's this constant learning and reinvention in the sense that now I'm the PSTP director. I gotta figure out how to do this and you know, help foster the career of individuals. And I think that that is very appealing. It's a never a boring job. You never get in a rut um, because there's always something that you could be doing that's new. So I would recommend to someone who's new to the field, or not new, but starting out in the field, is that having these periods where you don't know how to do your job is a normal part of this process. And that's why mentorship is so important because you want to surround yourself with people who are going to help you be better at what you do. But also being in this space where you are comfortable with, hey, I don't know how to do this right now, but I will learn it because I'm the kind of person that can do that. And I just need to know who to talk to, know who to go get help from, and you know, not be overwhelmed by the fear of not knowing how to do something. That there is a process to learning how to do something new, be it a new kind of experiment, a new technique, or a new additional administrative or teaching task or things like that. You know, what you are good at as a PhD is that you're really good at learning something. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think that that's the thing that I would say that, you know, that's the gut check of make sure that that's something that you're going to be happy with for, for the rest of your life. Some people are terrified of being a, in a situation where they don't know how to do something. And that is an extremely scary situation for them. And so those people may want to think twice about this career. The other thing that I think is going to be really important, especially as you get more and more scientific training, and this kind of harkens back to something I said earlier of trusting your gut, is that you should be willing to take some risks in the sense that, you know, if you want to be really like a top-notch person like Rich Gallo, then there's an element of you have to go someplace where no other people are going to. 
you don't want to be doing the kind of work where if you felt like, well, if Kellen never existed, then someone else would have made this discovery maybe a year later or two years later. As an eventual junior faculty, you want to be working in a place where there are very few people around, but because of the work that you're doing, it becomes a whole new area of its own. And that involves taking some risk. And that risk comes from your gut feeling of saying, hey, this thing that I'm interested in, that no one else seems to be pursuing, that's going to be important. Like, I just remember, I, I just gave a talk at the Inter International Conference on Microbial Engineering. And one of the, you know, one of the students came up to me and said, yeah, you know, two years ago, I talked to my PI about what if you engineer just a native bacteria as opposed to these lab strains, would that be better? And I told him, yeah, your gut feeling was really good. Like, you know, it worked out. So you should trust your next gut feeling as to mm -hmm. that's something that you should pursue. This actually comes from, uh, sorry, I don't want to make it too long, but no. comes from a, um, back in my cognitive neuroscience day, we used to do a lot of functional MRI work. And I just remembered thinking, you know, we, we put these people in the machine and the different parts of the area light up because blood flowing to them. And we think that those areas are activated, but wouldn't blood flow to an area that's getting inhibited too? And this just seems like there's something off, like, like it just doesn't make sense. And sure enough, like a, a year after I was having these thoughts, this group in Germany actually put electrodes into, um, I believe it was monkey brains, not human brains, where they actually showed that inhibition caused the same kind of blood flow and that uh, functional MRI was not necessarily just measuring activated areas of the brain. And I just remember thinking, you know, I didn't have the tools or things around to do a study like that, but at least the, this inclination that this is an important problem that no one answered, or this is an assumption that everyone's making that hasn't been addressed that that was an important gut feeling and I should trust my gut when I have these kind of things, these kind of questions in my mind. But isn't it remarkable that someone else ended up having that same gut feeling too and later answering that question? I find that yeah, no, I think funny sometimes. Yeah, I think that like I think that the timing we, is like Yeah, insane. timing is going to be very important and this is also why um as some people will tell you ideas are cheap. Mhm. Mm the you guys didn't see my air quotes of ideas are cheap because i think it's not only important to have an idea but you know the thing that you should be learning as a postdoc is how do you activate these ideas or turn them into a research program you know lobby your pi to provide resources for you to chase after an important question how do you know that that's an important question how can you convince other people that it's an important question and to pursue it and I think that those are skills that you develop in this interaction with a PI that then you also develop with your interaction with the field, be it for applying for grants or publishing a paper. Yeah, that's, that's the other recommendation I would make. Cool. Is there bad advice that you hear PIs give their trainees often that you think should be ignored? I think that the advice that I've gotten, which I have not listened to, and perhaps 
in five years, we'll have another conversation as to whether or not listening to this advice is good or bad, is that um, people have told me to focus more. And I think that that has been not such great advice, mainly because um, if you look at the funding coming into our lab, it's coming from multiple different institutes and on projects that uh, technically are the same, but a same kind of experiments, but they're chasing after different disease-related questions. You know, it's kind of interesting that you started this whole conversation about with diabetes, because now I think that my lab has definitely expanded beyond that area in the sense that the grants that bring in the most money into our lab have nothing to do with diabetes. I think that when you're working on something that's fundamental to so many different diseases. In our case, microbe host interactions and what specific functions do in these interactions, then it's going to be applicable to lots of different things. So I think that, you know, sure, it's a little bit hard to get your name out there when you're not really fully into one field and making significant contributions to that field. But it also means that I'm not beholden to a group of people who, you know, either like my research or don't and, and hence fund my research as a result. When we send out our papers to get reviewed, we have no idea who reviews them because we think it has so many different applications to so many different fields. Mm. I think that there are fads in science. Things are cyclical in terms of how important people think that they are and are not. I think that by having a very broad research program with prongs that can go into different fields, that it helps diversify the kind of funding, the kind of papers that you provide. That's number one. Number two is that it diversifies the kind of talent you bring into the lab as well. And having people who have completely different skill sets become part of the lab is one of the strongest assets that we have in our lab. So I think, you know, focusing has not has been uh, advice that I've gotten that I have ignored. And I think it has served us well thus far. So um, so that's, that's that would be my recommendation. Cool. I'm not sure if Rich Gallo would agree with me on that but we'll see our lab people do all sorts of different stuff my impression that i've always gotten from my mentors is that focus in the beginning just keep hammering in this direction and then once you feel like you have some solid ground under your feet then start branching out and letting the shiny objects attract you but if you're able to do that earlier and you still have you know, the, the lab is fine, then like you're getting to the end point faster, right? Our first engineered native bacteria grant, R01, was not discussed. Mm -hmm. And one of the reviewers wrote, I don't understand why the PI doesn't return to doing really great circadian work like they did as a postdoc. Yeah. So there, I think that Crazy. supports your statement. Actually, our first grant was a circadian grant. So it is easier to get funding on the things that you have shown expertise in. 
and now you know we'll see if funding is even easier now that this paper is out um, you know, we put in our first grant post publication of this paper for engineered native bacteria. Although we got we got funding for engineered native bacteria before that paper was out, just by the, by the strength of our preliminary data. So I think that that's going to be interesting. Okay, here's a sort of hypothetical question: If you had unlimited money and resources, unlimited IRB approval, what experiment would you do? Oh, I think I think that would be. I would want to determine whether we can do engineered native bacteria in humans. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to have a situation where we can try to cure diseases like IBD, or prevent cancer or diabetes by engineering very sophisticated uh, circuits into bacteria or even yeast to monitor disease and to provide therapeutics as needed within hosts, within human hosts. And then to have like the kind of team we're doing this kind of engineering would be very easy for them uh, as well as these studies. I think that that would be the infinite money scenario. You'd like to have a, a big, big lab to do all this stuff with the company um, do you envision like big 40 person Zarin like a lab? george george church 40 postdocs yeah. kind of thing like one of those where you take your lab picture on the staircase with like uh, <laughs> 200 people <laughs> um i think that the kind of people who are attracted to my lab are not the kind of people who are attracted to a 40 person mm -hmm. lab the person who goes into a 40 postdoc lab must have a lot of independence. I've never been in a lab like that. Never have I wanted to be in a lab like that. And I don't have trainees who are in a lab like that, nor wanted to be in a mm. lab like that. So that's a little foreign to me. Yeah. You know, one of the questions, you know, I'm five, six years into creating my lab. And I have been thinking more deeply about what is the next step. And one of the questions is scale. Do we scale up? Well, we've been, knock on wood, successful in getting funding. So do we just try to get more funding and double the number of postdocs and grad students in the lab and stuff like that? And it's not clear to me what problems that solves. Like, does it reduce my work? No, it probably makes it more, right? Like, you know, I think that What's going to be probably more important is having a more professional staff for certain aspects of things that we do more routinely in the lab so that... Like experienced technicians or... Experienced technicians who are much better at engineering the bacteria so that every... So say a new grad student wants to be working with engineered native bacteria, they don't have to learn all these you know they can learn as much of it as they want or mm -hmm. they can go and take a bacteria that's ready for plug and play and things mm -hmm. like that and i think that having expertise in the areas in the different areas in the lab in-house will make learning experience of new trainees better um, but also it would speed up some of the things that we we're trying to do so you want to have trainees coming in because they bring in novelty. They bring in new ideas. You don't get stuck just doing what Amir thinks is important. These people come in with experiences and help you do better science, right? 
So you want to have that going, but at the same time, you want, you know, the, the, the quote unquote problem with trainees is that they're learning. So things are slower. So you want to speed up that aspect. And also, you know, as a grad student, you have a PhD. You can't just pivot to a new project when something new or exciting comes up. With a more professional staff, you can do more pivots like that. So I think that that is what I'm hoping the next five years holds for us, that there are going to be things that we can do quicker as a result of having a more professional staff. Okay, cool. I have two more questions for you. Sure. The first is, what do you think the the biggest misconception in your field is? <laughs> that the composition of the microbiome matters? You think it doesn't? No. It's all about what they're doing. Correct. So when people say that the specific bacteria is really important, and maybe there are even notobiotic experiments that show that that bacteria can be beneficial. I would argue that it's not necessarily that bacteria, but what that bacteria is doing. That there are going to be examples of, of either different mice or humans where that bacteria doesn't exist, but the function that that bacteria does. And so that bacteria will not be a good biomarker. That bacteria will not necessarily, because, you know, since if you want to use it as a therapeutic, you're now going to put it into a new dynamic system, which it did not exist before and may not succeed. I, I, I acknowledge that I'm in the minority of microbiome researchers who believes this, but I think that it's really important to have an extreme theory saying that I don't, like, you know, prove me wrong. Prove me that it's really the bacteria and all of its constituents' parts as opposed to specific functions or a specific function that that bacteria does to the community. And I think that also this is why a lot of more compositionally based therapeutics that have been tried out in humans have had a lot of difficulty because they're really worried about who's there as opposed to what they're doing is important. How do we replicate the functional aspects of the microbiome rather than the compositional? Do you think this going back to the looking under the, the lamppost sort of analogy like is why people believe that composition is so important because the, you know, the tools that are currently most popular are, are looking at composition. You're talking about uh, metatranscriptomics, which is the tool that would be needed to look at the actual function. I guess you also have the metabolomics stuff too, but um, like once this tool is still like kind of being developed, right? The metatranscriptomics, once that's up and running and, and more widespread uh, in its use, that people will start thinking about that more? Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm at UCSD, because we have collaborators like Rob and Peter, right? Peter um, is trying to get at the metabolome and describing compounds that go beyond what, you know, targeted metabolomics can tell us. And um, Rob is helping us develop better methodologies to, to, to know better what, what's functionally important. I totally think that just because it's become cheaper to do 16S, that a lot of people are doing it, and then they do what I unkindly call ass-backward science, which is that you show 
a compositional difference and then you go back to the literature and try to justify why this compositional difference is so important rather than having that built into your hypothesis to begin with. And I think that um, it's really important to know the biases of doing experiments that way. And, and you know, I say ask back. We did it in our 2014 paper because that's what, like, you know, we saw differences between time-restricted feeding, high-fat diet, and we said, oh, these differences might be important. I, in retrospect, I don't think those differences are important at all. And then the other thing that tells you that composition is not important is that the microbiome of a normal mouse on a normal child diet changes by more than 80% within 12 hours. 12 hours, 80% of the bacteria that you saw there in time point one are no longer there. So the difference between mouse A at hour one and mouse A at hour 13 are far, far, far greater than the difference you would see between mouse A and your experimental mouse, mouse B, mm -hmm. at the same time. So now you're going to tell me that these little pittance of differences you saw between your experimental and control conditions are so important when there is an 80% change within that same mouse later on? Like, I don't think that that's going to be the case. That's one thing. The other thing is, so now I've told you function is important. I also think that functions express that specific times are going to be important. And that's something we're going to show with our engineered native bacteria, where the beneficial effects of this function only occur during certain windows of time. And that is going to be, I think, new in the sense that our assumption is that we are constantly interacting with bacteria in a way that is constant at every time point. But what is really happening is we have these antennas up only a certain periods of time. So these antennas are going up like, you know, hey, uh, I just ate something. Hey, are these compounds out in the lumen? Oh, they are? Okay, now I can change my physiological strategy of doing whatever it is that I'm doing. Like, you know, those antennas are going to be down the rest of the time. So this concept of even function is going to be time relevant. And I think that the more we understand about how dynamic the microbiome is, the more we understand that who's there doesn't matter at all. That what probably matters is whether functions are there and whether there are fluxes, whether change is occurring and this dynamic structure exists which then goes back to certain functions being performed at certain times. So it's very hard for me to read microbiome papers because I always think, well, if they'd measured, well, first of all, when did they measure their things? Mm -hmm. And then second of all, if they'd measured this 12 hours later, would they've gotten the same results? Would they have com come to the same conclusion? A paper that we are in review um, that Celeste has been working on is that if I was an evil scientist, I can get you any microbiome. You want, you want experimental and control condition to look like they're unchanged? I can give you results that look like that based on the timing that I collect my specimens. You want them to look wildly different? I'll give you another time that they will be wildly different. You want this one bacteria to be different, but not these other bacteria? 
I'll give you a time where that's going to happen. So if you have the time scale, even even if you have your control and experimental group at the same time, you're saying, depending on when you harvest those samples, you can pretty much engineer your result. You're saying you can or harvesting them at different times. The control you can engineer the gradation of difference. But even that thing that you said, if you're measuring at the same time, we went and looked at papers. No one is saying that they're measuring their microbiome at the same time. But for all we know, they could be going and just grabbing the dirty cage and taking a 24-hour stool from these mice. It's not like they're claiming oh. that they're doing fresh specimens right, at that Right, because you're just grabbing time. the cage, and you don't know when that piece of poop came we out. We have no idea what people uh. are doing. No one's reporting. No one's confirming, A, that they're collecting stool at the same time nor are they confirming the time of day that the, the sample is being collected. So once you say, okay, this is an assumption that I'm making because I'm a circadian biologist and we control for these things. But when you talk to people, not everyone's doing that. So basically, I, I just remember- They probably like, don't even know they're not, they're, they're not doing that, right? They're just like, oh, I'm taking the poop. I mean, <laughs> I think, I, think I, you know, I made it sound like, you know, you could be very nefarious. You could yeah. be very nefarious, but, you know, 99.99% of scientists <laughs> are just doing the experiment the way that they've been taught before. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that they know the bias that this introduces. But I do recall when we first published our paper showing the circadian changes- uh, of the microbiome, one of my colleagues said, you know, the postdoc changed and so did all of our microbiome results. And I realized it was because one liked to collect stool in the morning and the other liked to collect stool before he, they went home. So just by that nine hour shift, that's exactly where we saw like all these big differences. That's why I think composition doesn't matter. So with composition not mattering, then all this nonsense about alpha diversity and um, gosh, all these papers that first present to alpha diversity. I mean, we do it too, but like, you know, we kind of feel like we got to do it because everyone does it, but it's just like, who cares? Like, it's not going to matter. Like our time restricted feeding mice where we are fairly certain that this is microbiome driven physiological improvement has very low alpha diversity compared to normal child mice based on richness. If you look at alpha diversity based on Shannon's or, or these other uh, metrics, they are totally unchanged from thiod-induced obesity mice, completely the same. So we just, I think these things we do because they're easy, not because they're important. Mm -hmm. Technical question that the audience might not care about, but I'm interested. So what's your strategy for making sure you collect the fecal pellets at the same time is it just like scruffing the mouse and watching it poop <laughs> in your hand and that's the sample we for our circadian studies we do q3 hours so we take the cage and we collect all the stool that came out in the last three hours and all we, of it and like homogenize it together okay so, pool so that's that's what we do for a circadian so usually most of our physiological experiments have a circadian stool collection as part of it for specimens that are collected at specific times, um, so for example, our engineered native bacteria study where we did a 16S characterization and things like that, that is you put the mouse in a cup, they provide a fresh specimen for you, then you put them back in their cage. So you only have sp fresh specimens. Mm -hmm. So you know exactly 
when that was produced, under right. what circumstances, yada, 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 yada. It makes it easy to compare across lots of different um, conditions. So I'm glad, I'm glad we talked about this. I think that's an important thing that I, I never thought about. Very cool. Okay, last question. Do you believe that luck or hard work has contributed more to your success in your career? There's no doubt that we have been lucky. There are so many things in that paper that we published in Cell that could have just completely gone wrong. And they just worked, right? But I do also believe in the maxim of fortune favors the prepared. And I think that there are a lot of really great examples of people doing an experiment, getting an unexpected result, but still asking the why and pursuing it. So then you can say, well, was that luck or, or hard work? I think that it's both. But I think that like, you know, you also create your own luck, right? Like the more experiments you do, chances that you'll get lucky with one of them are higher and and then just making an observation is not enough. If you want to get into a good journal, it takes hard work to figure out what that observation means. It's kind of like nature or nurture with your kids, right? Like, you know, how do you know which one's more important? Well, they're both important. I think that we got super lucky. And, you know, look, when, when I did my faculty research program, Chalk Talk at different institutions, you have your high risk, high reward, and you have your not so high risk, high, not so high risk, but still somewhat rewarding <laughs> kind of plans. So I kind of feel like, you know, my career trajectory is not because I got lucky. Certainly that made things a lot easier. I feel like with the more tried and true, like, you know, just looking at circadian effects of different, you know, these dynamic changes and whatnot, that we still would have a successful research program with some level of funding and some answers about various physiological issues or processes rather. So I don't think that I'm successful because I'm lucky, but certainly I think that luck makes things a lot easier. Right. So I don't know. Does that answer? Is that a cop out? Yeah, like did no, I cop no. out of it? No, it's good. It's good. Is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? So so there are two things I want to say. One is that being a PI is a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. I, I should say it's not very rewarding financially compared <laughs> to some things that are out there, but it's very fulfilling, shall we say, that in the least you're able to impact the trainees in your lab by making them excited about science. At best, you have the ability to impact the field and how people think about science. And at the very best in, in the kind of work we do, you potentially have the impact of improving the human condition and reversing disease. I think that these are um, really what makes pursuing academia exciting. But you know, I think that the other thing is that academia is probably the lowest paid version of what we do. And one of the things that uh, I 
realized from my physician scientists colleagues who did not stay in academia was that they were paid handsomely to leave which made me think that gosh if this doesn't work out then i'm going to be paid handsomely so i might as well just do the craziest thing that i think is the funnest thing ever to do in lab and i think that that is increased our taste for risk in the projects that we take and do so so basically what that's really getting at is that you shouldn't be afraid to take risks and i think it's going to be really important to do these gut checks like like where i say again we're going back to gut feelings and stuff like that like if amir really thinks the composition doesn't matter then how do we do experiments to prove that that's the case, right? So this really pushes you to do these extreme experiments that then yield some very interesting results and then help inform our uh, debate in the field. I think when you look at like some of the, I'm not saying that our question about the microbiome is anywhere near like, like the debates that have existed about uh, say evolution uh, so, so I'm not saying it's like like that, but like you know, but I think that when you take an extreme position, and then you do an experiment that tests it directly, it can help you prove or disprove your point. And taking those kind of risks is going to be really important. That's one thing. The other thing is that when you've been in a field for a very long time, you, as part of that community start making certain assumptions that you are invisible to or like they, they, those assumptions are invisible to you because they are just part of your psyche and part of doing these experiments and this is why it's important to have people in your lab who are coming from outside of the field because they will force you to confront these assumptions and the papers that address assumptions like for example with this time of stool collection thing are going to be really instrumental in helping us do, as a community, better science. So take risks, look at what people are assuming, and tackle those issues. And um, don't don't get stuck believing in everyone else's assumptions as well. I think those are just major things that I would impart on young scientists. Great advice. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I had a great time. I think we'll wrap it up now. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for having me. And um, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll have another big paper and get invited by you to, to do this. Yeah, so. I'd love to have you. <laughs> All right, Amir. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.